Welcome to episode 115 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, political sloganeering, Kamala Harris, state secession, or George Floyd comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean.com, BitChute.com, Brighteon.com, and ThinkSpot. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook advertising. Please see this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Ruth Bader Ginsburg died recently. Let the fawning begin. She is described as an icon, a trailblazer, a titan, a fearless advocate for women and families, someone who never stopped working towards greater equality for all in the eyes of the law, a champion of gender equality, the architect of the legal fight for women's rights in the 1970s. She changed the way the world is for American women. To the end of her tenure, she remained a special kind of feminist, both decorous and dogged. She stood for what was right. Well, at least what was right in the eyes of liberals in America. One columnist said, quote, she gave a voice to the voiceless, end quote. Of course, that did not apply to the truly voiceless, that is, babies in the womb, as she was an advocate for the constitutionality of killing those with no repercussions for the doctor or the so-called mother. And she was, of course, the longest-serving woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was born in 1933 in Brooklyn, New York. Her mother worked in a garment factory, and her father was in the fur trade. Her mother died when she was in high school. She attended Harvard Law School, where she was one of only nine women in the class of more than 500, and found the dean asking her why she was taking up place that, quote, should go to a man, end quote. She transferred to Columbia, where she graduated at the top of her law school class. Jobs in the legal field for women in the 1960s were scarce. But in 1963, Ginsburg finally landed a teaching job at Rutgers Law School. While at Rutgers, she began her work fighting gender discrimination. She became the first female tenured professor at Columbia Law School, where she founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union. As an attorney for the ACLU, she argued six sex discrimination cases before the Supreme Court, winning five of them, including the landmark Reed v. Reed in 1971, in which the court held that the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause prohibited discrimination on the basis of sex. We will touch on the 14th Amendment in a few minutes. She continued to chip away at gender inequalities over the course of the next two decades, Knowing that she had to persuade male establishment-oriented judges, she often picked male plaintiffs, and she liked using Social Security cases because they illustrated how discrimination against women can harm men. For example, in one case, she took a case of a widower fighting for the rights for his wife's Social Security benefits in order to help raise their newborn child after his wife died during childbirth. Over the years, Ginsburg would file dozens of briefs, seeking to persuade the courts that the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection applies not just to racial and ethnic minorities, but to women as well. 
1977, Ginsburg was co-author of a 230-page report entitled Sex Bias in the U.S. Code, which was paid for by the U.S. Civil Rights Commission. The report's multiple controversial proposals included integrating prisons that separated inmates based on gender, raising questions about the exclusivity of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, challenging laws prohibiting prostitution, and questioning the celebration of Mother's Day and Father's Day on separate dates. I need to stop right here for just a minute. I am by no means claiming that Ginsburg is some left-wing lunatic, but I want you to consider some of the recommendations from her sex bias report in terms of modern-day America. We now have men who identify as a woman housed in women's prisons, competing against women in athletics, and using women's bathrooms. The Boy Scouts has been decimated largely due to their forced integration. I have no idea if the Girl Scouts still exist or not, but give me a break, people. Why can't there be a Boy Scouts and a Girl Scouts? Why can't these omnipotent in their own minds, liberals, just let people freely associate with whomever they want? Why can't the Boy Scouts admit only boys? What kind of busybody mind comes up with an attack on Mother's and Father's Day? Anyway... In 1980, President Jimmy Carter named Ginsburg to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Then in 1993, President Bill Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court, the second woman appointed to the position. She was confirmed by a 96-3 vote. Imagine that. Republicans voted for her? And she served 27 years, where she was known for her hard work and diligence, as well as a near-celebrity status by liberals. We'll hit on that in just a minute. She survived five bouts with cancer, colon cancer in 99, pancreatic cancer 10 years later, lung cancer in 2018, and then pancreatic cancer again in 2019, along with liver lesions in 2020. During that time, she endured chemotherapy, radiation, and in the last years of her life, she endured terrible pain from shingles that just never went away completely. People who knew her admired her for her grit. In 2009, three weeks after major cancer surgery, she surprised everyone when she showed up for the State of the Union address. Her husband of over 50 years died a few years ago. The day after he died, she was back at work. She was an avid consumer of opera, literature, and modern art. But in the end, it was her work, she said, that sustained her. In recent years, she grew into a liberal cultural icon. In life, they fawned over her almost as much as they do in death. She was nicknamed the Notorious RBG, which is a play on the name of a dead rapper, Notorious B.I.G. America's favorite oxygenarian inspired t-shirts, Halloween costumes, pillows, and all kinds of other stuff. There's even an Oscar-nominated documentary about her early legal career. So these people who turned her into a cultural icon while alive are treating her death as if a religious saint has passed away. And I guess when your religion is politics or progressivism or liberalism, they are kind of correct. Think about all the intersectional boxes she checked off. Woman. Liberal. Judge. No wonder they fawn over her. My distrust of and disdain for the federal government and the damage it has done to the country by exceeding its constitutional boundaries in biblical proportions precludes me from honoring anyone who was a part of it. And make no mistake, the Supreme Court is part of the federal government, and its failure to rein in the executive and legislative branches like it was designed to do drives my ire to a new level. So what's the big deal? Why are you throwing cold water on RBG's death? Why can't you just let us celebrate her life? 
I got no problem with you celebrating her life. I highlighted a number of wonderful achievements and desirable character traits that she demonstrated, but when it comes to her work as a Supreme Court justice, the bottom line is she did not do her job. She should have been impeached years ago, perhaps decades ago, as should most of her colleagues. What are you saying? What blasphemy are you spewing about impeachment of judges? Well, consider, what is the job of a Supreme Court justice? What is the oath taken by these justices? Did she do her job? Did she uphold her oath? Their job is to listen to arguments about a specific case and offer an opinion, not a ruling, not a decision, not legislation, of whether or not the facts as presented violate the United States Constitution. What is their oath? Well, contrary to popular opinion, Supreme Court justices do not take an oath to follow precedent. The oath they take, along with other federal workers, reads in part, quote, to support and defend the Constitution, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. Did Ginsburg violate her oath? Hell yes, she did. She did it gladly, as do all liberal justices who make up constitutional rights out of thin air or via the concept of stare decisis, or precedent, whereby previous judicial decisions, I mean previous judicial opinions, are followed as if they were provided by God himself to make decisions and opinions on the current case which is how a right to privacy, completely made up in the Griswold case, was used several years later to declare a right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. America is dying a death of a million bad precedents. One opinion in one case gets used in another case, and no one ever goes back and says, hey, that precedent from that case in 1962, that was used in that case in 1973, which was used in the case in 1976, which was used in that case in 1996, was unconstitutional. One bad precedent leads to another. And in all honesty, the so-called conservative justices often do this as well. Clarence Thomas may be the lone exception. Even Scalia took liberties on occasion. So when you look back at the notorious RBG's opinions, she supported all kinds of things that are simply not in the Constitution, thus deeming her unworthy of my admiration in life or death. If you would like a deep dive into the Supreme Court, please listen to episode 16, The Truth About the Supreme Court. So let's examine her judicial record, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The first big case she had was a challenge to a law that barred a Colorado man named Charles Moritz from taking a tax deduction for the care of his 89-year-old mother. The IRS said the deduction by statute could only be claimed by women or widowed or divorced men, but Moritz had never married. Ginsburg's solution was to ask the court not to invalidate the statute, but to apply it equally to both sexes. She won in the lower courts. The IRS appealed it to the Supreme Court, stating that the decision would cast a cloud of unconstitutionality over literally hundreds of federal statutes. She spent the next decade arguing against those numerous statutes. In 1971, she wrote her first Supreme Court brief in the case Reed v. Reed, mentioned briefly a moment ago. Ginsburg represented Sally Reed, who thought she should be the executor of her son's estate instead of her ex-husband. The constitutional issue was whether a state could automatically prefer men over women as executors of estates. The answer from the all-male Supreme Court? No. So as an attorney representing her clients, she was very successful and very strategic in her selection of mainly male plaintiffs to chip away at gender-based preferences in society. But her record as a judge on the highest court in the land is another story altogether. In 1996, she wrote the majority opinion in United States versus Virginia. 
This was the case that struck down Virginia military institutions' traditional male-only admission policy. The 7-to-1 opinion declared VMI violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Ginsburg wrote, quote, Women seeking and fit for a VMI quality education cannot be offered anything less under the state's obligation to afford them genuinely equal protection, end quote. So given her stance on the Boy Scouts from the 1970s, it's no surprise that she would author the majority opinion in this case. The legal logic is fatally flawed, but as I mentioned earlier, the court just continues to use one bad precedent to opine on new cases. If you listen to episode 37, you would know that the 14th Amendment was passed in order to ensure black Americans, freed slaves, were afforded equal protection under the law as whites. That's it. It had nothing to do with women or men or sexual orientation or any other perceived aggrieved group. At least Ginsburg wasn't alone in her ignorance of the Constitution in this case. Hell, it was a 7-to-1 opinion. Ginsburg descended in the Bush v. Gore case in 2000 where the court ordered the end of the Florida recount. Now, I would be the first to admit that I don't want the federal court telling a state what to do. But over her career, Ginsburg was conveniently picking and choosing when and if she stood for federalism. In another case in 2007, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, the court upheld Congress's Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act of 2003. Ginsburg dissented, saying in part, quote, The act and the court's defense of it cannot be understood as anything other than an effort to chip away at a right declared again and again by this court, and with the increasing comprehension of its centrality to women's lives, end quote. As Joe Biden would say, come on, man. If she can find equal protection problem in the VMI case, why couldn't she protect innocent babies from infanticide? That same year, Ginsburg dissented in the Ledbetter v. Goodyear, a case that limited back pay availability to victims of employment discrimination. She called on Congress to pass legislation that would override a court opinion. The resulting legislation was the first bill passed in 2009 after Obama took office. The only reason I harp on this case is because the federal government has no enumerated power in the Constitution to interfere with labor laws, but liberals like Ginsburg have never seen a federal regulation that they didn't like. In 2012, she descended in the 7-2 opinion in Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. If you pay the least bit of attention to the news, you will be familiar with this case. The owner of a Colorado cake shop refused to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple on the grounds that doing so violated his religious convictions against same-sex marriage. Rather than simply finding another baker to bake their damn cake, the same-sex couple brought a discrimination claim against Phillips before the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The commission, of course, ruled in the couple's favor. Here's the problem. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission found no discrimination on another similar case where three bakers refused to bake a cake shaped like a Bible with anti-homosexual messages written on it. The Supreme Court opined that the Colorado Commission showed hostility towards religious beliefs and should have ruled consistently. Ginsburg made a nuanced argument in her dissent. The first baker's decision was based solely on discrimination, whereas the others had nothing to do with discrimination. Oh, how RBG was lauded by the liberal press. It showed her moral judgment. She demonstrated inspiring, logical clarity. She also dissented in the 2014 Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores case, where the court for the first time recognized a for-profit corporation's claim of religious belief. 
The store chain, owned by an evangelical family, challenged an Affordable Care Act mandate that employers cover the cost of certain contraceptives for their female employees. In a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court opined that the mandate violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Ginsburg argued that for-profit ventures cannot have religious beliefs. Well, no shit, notorious RBG. Corporations are inanimate objects that only exist on paper. The people who run them do have beliefs. And on top of that, the Obamacare law is unconstitutional, regardless of Chief Justice Robert's shenanigans. She also wrote in part, quote, Approving some religious claims while deeming others unworthy of accommodation could be perceived as favoring one religion over another, the very risk the establishment cause was designed to preclude. The court, I fear, has ventured into a minefield, end quote. The ignorance and lack of constitutional context in that first sentence is utterly amazing. The Establishment Clause forbid the federal government from establishing a state religion, and it prevents the passage of any law that gives preferences to or forces belief in any one religion, neither of which were an issue in the Hobby Lobby case. The reaction by the Democratic Party over Trump daring to name a replacement for RBG and the Senate actually doing their constitutional duty to advise and consent has been as expected. More outrage. I swear, what would these people do if they could not find an outrage of the day to yell and scream about? How dare he replace RBG in the middle of an election year? After all, Mitch McConnell refused to hold a vote on Merrick Garland, Obama's pick to replace Antonin Scalia in his last year in office. The truth is, a Supreme Court position has opened up 29 times during an election year. 19 times the President's party held the majority in the Senate. And of those 19 times, the Senate approved the President's nominee 17 times. Furthermore, those who glorify Ginsburg as a hero for supporting her personal beliefs as a member of the Supreme Court are now freaking out that the next pick might do the same exact thing, i.e., the Catholic nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. These people are incorrigible. Like most liberal Supreme Court justices, Ginsburg was no friend to the Constitution. She did not believe in interpreting the constitutionality of the case presented before her. She believed in judicial activism. She believed that the Constitution was a living, evolving document that did not necessarily say what it said. It said what she thought it should say. So here's the thing. Supreme Court justices do not take an oath to follow or promote their personal, political, economic, religious, or social views. They do not take an oath to protect national security or advance the greater good. And they do not take an oath to support a political party, a person in office, or anything else. Their job, their only job for that matter, is to follow their oath to the Constitution of the United States. Ginsburg did not follow her oath, period. Therefore, I find her ineligible for sainthood. She demonstrated her disdain for the U.S. Constitution in a 2012 interview on Egyptian TV. She advised Egyptians not to use the U.S. Constitution as a model for Egypt's new government. She thought it was a, quote, rather old constitution, end quote. Rather, she suggested the Egyptians look instead to the Constitution of South Africa or perhaps the European Convention on Human Rights. All of those are, quote, much more recent than the U.S. Constitution, end quote. And at one point in recent years, Ginsburg argued that justices should consult foreign interpretations of law for, quote, persuasive value and possible wisdom, end quote. 
She said, quote, the notion that it is improper to look beyond the borders of the United States in grappling with hard questions has a certain kinship to the view that the United States Constitution is a document essentially frozen in time as of the date of its ratification, end quote. She is a United States Supreme Court justice. Her only job is to offer opinions on the constitutionality of the case in front of her, that being the United States of America's constitution, not Spain or India or Russia. Her disdain for the constitution is not as blatant as someone like Obama, but to argue that it's not frozen in time sheds some light on her beliefs. The U.S. Constitution is essentially frozen in time. That's the point. It means what it says. It limits the federal government to a few enumerated powers, and it charges that government with protecting the natural rights of its citizens. It can be amended through a specific, rather arduous process, making it not completely frozen in time, however. It means what it says, and judges like Ginsburg don't like that because it does not allow them to read into it things that are not there. The truth is, the left weaponized the Supreme Court decades ago. They have successfully used the court to move their unpopular social agenda forward. They have successfully assassinated the character of no less than four Republican nominees to the court. It started with Bork, then Clarence Thomas, then Alito, then Kavanaugh. They are so desperate to maintain a majority in the Supreme Court that they will go to any lengths to destroy so-called conservative nominees. Outside the realm of civil procedure, where she was known as an expert, Ginsburg will be a forgotten justice. On the other hand, her work as an attorney prior to her nomination to the court was noteworthy. If anything, that will be her legacy, making her worthy of some of the sycophantic accolades I mentioned at the outset of this episode. Trailblazer, a fearless advocate for women and families, the architect of the legal fight for women's rights in the 70s. But I still have a hard time getting over the worship of her. Unlike her friend Antonin Scalia, whose opinions will be read a hundred years from now, the truth is, when it comes to Ginsburg, few will discuss her career on the court. It just isn't noteworthy. She did not break the glass ceiling for women on the Supreme Court. That was Sandra Day O'Connor, a Reagan nominee. Her judicial legacy on the court is shallow. I mean, I presented the highlights earlier. That's it. That's 27 years worth. But to the left, she represented. She ignored the Constitution in order to push an agenda that would never pass legislatively. And for that, she is an icon. For that, she is the notorious RBG. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.